Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here this morning to study your word. And I pray as we're going through the book of uh, Acts, I pray that you be with us, uh, with me as I teach. And I pray that you give me wisdom and words. I also pray that you be with me and give me wisdom and words and speak through me as I preach in the next uh, service as well. I pray, Lord, that you help us understand your word and help us live according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is supposed to say something, and it's saying something. Okay, so the continued defense of Peter based on Acts 5, 30 to 31. So what is going on over uh, here in Acts 5, 30 to 31? The God of our fathers. Now we know the background of this text is that Peter was uh, Peter and the disciples were brought back up again to face the face the leaders of their time, face the committee, face the Sanhedrin, and they're really, in, in some ways, they're sort of torturing the disciples for sharing the name of Jesus Christ, for proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, for preaching Jesus Christ. So they were in big trouble according to the leadership of their time. So they were brought back up again to them to face persecution and so forth. But then every time they were brought to face the leaders of their time, every time they were brought to face the, the opposition, so to say, of those who opposed Jesus Christ and his name, Peter and the disciples always defended their faith. They've always stood for what they believed. It is simply amazing how they were so bold and courageous. But we also have to look back into Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, where these people, when they first reported about the persecution, the church of their time, the new church, the young church of their time, prayed and asked God for what? Not to remove the persecution and the troubles, but to give them boldness and confidence. In other words, Jesus taught them well. Jesus taught them what's going to happen, and the disciples heard Jesus extremely well. If Jesus taught them well, the disciples heard his words extremely well, and they treasured his words, and they kept his teaching in their hearts, because Jesus taught them that they're going into the midst of wolves. They're going into the midst of people who would hate his name, because the world has already hated him. Jesus said they're going to hate you as well, but when they hate you, just don't take it too personal because they hate me. They're hating me. But when you go out to preach the gospel, when you go out to share the word, share the good news of, of the Lord, you're going to be hated by a lot of people. And that is what's happening over here. So the people were fully aware of what Jesus taught them and fully aware of the persecution that is ahead of them. And still, they came back to serve the Lord. We know when Jesus was arrested, disciples just ran, right? A lot of them just dis dispersed to various parts and they just disappeared because their leader was arrested. Their leader was, you know, about to be dead. So why would anyone want to stay around if their leader is going to be arrested by Roman, um, Roman soldiers? And where are they really? But they came back because of who Christ is, because of uh, his teaching because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they came back to sacrifice their lives. However, every time they get in trouble with these authorities, they're always defending. So look here what Peter says. I mean, he was brought again back in front of the Sanhedrin, but then he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom he slew and hanged on the tree. You're not going to escape from this fact. The fact is Jesus came here, but you put him to death. You put him to death. So this is like I think maybe third time, if I remember right, at least Peter pointed his 
words that they had, the Sanhedrin at the committee, at the authorities, that they killed Jesus. This is probably the third time he was saying that. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we're basically looking at the uh, background information here. So uh, what Peter is saying, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And this Jesus is not simply a historical figure in the past or, uh, or that his death was a historical event in the past. The death of Jesus is an event of salvation in which God has promised that hope and salvation through Eve's seed, through Abraham, Moses, the prophets, and etc. So this is coming from all the way back. You might be uh, coming up with an excuse or not thinking that you're not part of this whole thing, but you are part of this whole thing. And Peter was really pointing his finger at these people. So, so Peter, in some ways, in some sense, is saying, you killed Jesus, and then you continue to stop his work even till this day. You're wanting us to stop his work. You killed him and you don't want his name to come out. I mean, why would anyone want to do that? Probably they're guilty. Probably there's some sense of guilt. Something is going on in the, in the, in the hearts or minds of this, this committee because that's why they're trying to stop Jesus' name being propagated, being, pro, being proclaimed on the streets of Jerusalem and, and the other parts. So, so what is the proof that they killed Jesus Christ, and there is uh, that in verse uh, 30, whom he slew and hanged him, hanged him. So we also see this uh, as, a, as a proof text from 3.13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he determined to let him go. So these people are truly responsible for killing Jesus, what he was uh, saying here. So what did God do with Jesus based on 5.31? He exalted Jesus Christ on the right hand, the place of honor as leader and savior. So what is the purpose of it? That he might give Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. So who can forgive sins? That is also one of the things that actually brought Jesus in trouble, right? Who is he to forgive sins? He tells this woman who comes to the Pharisee's house for at lunchtime. So she comes in and she wipes Jesus with her hair and Jesus actually tells her that her sins are forgiven. That's a question mark in the Pharisee's mind. Who is he that to forgive somebody else's sins? He didn't get who Jesus was. The people at the time did not get who Jesus was, but he forgave sins. So that actually pushed them in the wrong direction. That got them even to hate him more. That got him even to uh, you know, plan to persecute him because he was doing only things that God would do. So... Here we are learning the purpose of God exalting Jesus Christ is that he might give to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. And obviously Jesus came to give his people repentance and forgiveness, but these people did not want to do anything with, uh, with the Lord, obviously. So Jesus is Israel's prince who is co-equal with God. He shares God's authority and is the one who initiates restoration of the kingdom who alone can offer eternal life because he's eternal life. Jesus Christ, when he came, what is the purpose of his coming? To save his people. What is the purpose of his coming? To reconcile the world to himself. Who is the head of the ministry of reconciliation? God himself. And who is that God? Jesus Christ. Why would he want to reconcile the world back to himself? Because that is the heartbeat of God. To bring back people back to himself. If he doesn't care, he wouldn't have sent his son to this world at all. If he doesn't care, he would have annihilated Adam and Eve. If he missed annihilating Adam and Eve, he would have annihilated people based on Genesis chapter 6. If he missed that, he would have annihilated people based on 
chapter 9, when Noah sinned, he would have wiped out. If he missed that, he would have wiped out people in Genesis chapter 10. If he missed that, he would have wiped out Abraham and his descendants when Abraham lied to the king in Egypt about Sarah. There's so many opportunities and, and possibilities that God would have entirely cleaned this, this universe because of human sin. But he did not. He did not. He could have, I mean, there would not be 12 tribes of Israel if God was so serious. I mean, if he really wanted to terminate, annihilate the humanity, he would have done that when Rachel was hiding the gods that she brought with herself. The idols, the, the worship, because the ancestors worship other gods. And we're going to look at that in this morning service. They worship other gods and so forth. The God would have annihilated these people because of their worship to other gods and allegiance with other gods and so forth. But he did not because his plan is different. God is seeing into future. Into the future. He's saying maybe when, he, when his son, not maybe actually, when he sent his son, he's going to send his son because his son, son uh, he was determined to send his son way before the foundation of the world. He's going to send his son so that he could save his people, so he could reconcile. The plan of God is not never, is never to destroy the entire thing. But the plan of God, even though people pushed him to the limits of destruction to destroy entire universe, he was so gracious that he appointed his son to come to this earth so that he could, he could, he could bypass his wrath upon his people so he could restore people back to himself because of his love for humanity that is the love of god when our finite minds is so difficult to understand the infinite love of infinite god it is so difficult to understand because we we don't have that ability to comprehend the fullness of god's love the full meaning of god's love but jesus is the savior who is sent to restore his people when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom with him. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, but his own people rejected him. If his own people did not reject Jesus Christ, his kingdom would have been established. But God knew in his sovereignty, in his all-knowing, in his omniscience, God knew that people would reject him. His people would reject him. He came to save his people, and he knew that his people are going to reject him, so he extended his grace towards us, towards the Gentiles. Jesus is the Savior. He secures life before God and Jesus saves. So he is the Savior. He came to this world for that very purpose, to save people. So we looked at this last time, the gracious act of God. Eckhart God says God offers salvation, not retribution for the crucifixion of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. If God were to uh, destroy, God were to destroy humanity because of what they did to Jesus Christ, that would have been very different, right? He would have just destroyed everybody else. But God is not seeking revenge. He's not seeking revenge. And Peter says in 532, And we are his witnesses of these things. You crucified him. We are the witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to us that obey him. Now, they don't have Holy Ghost because obviously the Sanhedrin, the committee are not obeying God. They don't have Holy Spirit. But what Peter was saying is not just we are the witnesses, but also God himself is witness of what you have done. Holy Spirit is witness of what you have done. Holy Spirit, God is always there in existence. He was there in, at the beginning of creation. Without Holy Spirit, there is no creation. Because God's Spirit was hovering, right? Without God's Spirit, there is no creation at all. Because all three, Trinity is involved in creation. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in creation. So, 
He is saying, we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. In other words, Peter is saying two things here. The disciples are witness and also Holy Spirit. Lastly, in this verse, we also see the Holy Spirit is with them that obey God, meaning the Holy Spirit is another witness of Jesus, the Messiah. His presence convicts the people who come to him in faith and also transforms people from inside out. Holy Spirit is in them that obey God. If there is a person then, the opposite of that is what? If there is a person that doesn't obey God, then Holy Spirit is not in him. Right? That's, that's how I'm, I understand that. Holy Spirit is given to them that obey God's word. And obedience is such a big thing in the entirety of the scripture. We see from Old Testament page one to the last page, obedience is important. If Adam and Eve, if they only obeyed the word of God, the command of God, things would have been different. If the patriarchs only obeyed the words of God, things would have been different. If the ancient people obeyed the word of God, things would have been different. In Jesus' time, if these people obeyed the word of God, things would have been different. Obedience, obedience, obedience is the key for good Christian living. God demands obedience from all of us. God demands obedience from them. He demands obedience from us. We just have to obey the commandments of the Lord. And that's in whom God will be cheerful. God will be happy in the person who obeys his word. If, he, if we are not obeying God's word, then obviously God is not going to be happy about us. So we look when they heard that they were cut to heart and took counsel to slay them. Look at these people. Are they, are they backing off? Peter was saying, hey, you are the people who killed Jesus. Now even, come on. Uh, we're giving you an opportunity to think, use your minds to think and repent of your sins because Christ said in a parable, I mean, which, which even Pharisees understood, meaning he was opening because parables are given to block people's understanding, to seize the outsiders to understand the point that God was making. But at one point, even the Pharisees understood what Christ was saying. They perceived, they knew that he was talking about them, the Pharisees. And through that, uh, the, the two, the tale of two sons, through that parable, he was saying, even now there is time for you, hypocrites. If you only believe, turn your hearts, believe in God and obey in Him, you too will have access to heaven. Christ never said to you, Pharisees, you will never, ever, 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 ever have access to heaven. Salvation is to all. Anyone that obeys the Lord, anyone that believes the Lord, even for Pharisees. We know not all Pharisees are bad people. There are some people who believed in the Lord. There are some good Pharisees as well who are generous, who are kind. Nicodemus. Yeah, Nicodemus, yeah. I mean, he wants to know the truth. He wants to know. He wants to know what's going on. So not every, we can't just generalize and say all Pharisees are terrible people, but sometimes we just do that. And especially, you know, when we look at the Scripture and see what Pharisees are doing, you hypocrites, when, when we read those kind of things, or you um, generation of vipers. Oh, mm, the, all these Pharisees must be such horrible people. But no, that's not the case. But there are some people who are nice people. However, the general population of Pharisees are terrible. Are terrible. So Christ pointed out to them, even you have a chance if you believe in God, if you change your heart, believe in God, repenting meaning change your heart, change your life, change your attitude. If you believe in God, you still have access to heaven. But then they don't want to go the direction. Look at these people. When they heard what Peter said, they were cut to heart and they took counsel to kill them. And so we see here in 33, the continued hostility of Jewish leaders. So we 
Uh, notice the verbs Luke used here to help the whole, to by the help of Holy Spirit. The Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin heard. They heard. They were so keenly observing and listening to every word the disciples were saying. They heard. They were cut to heart. They took Peter's words very seriously. This is an emotional term. It cut their heart, which may indicate that their facial and physical appearance changed, holding fists like holding fists and grinding teeth. If you don't do anything wrong, and if someone accuses you, you won't really get upset, right? If someone comes to me and says, I didn't do something wrong, if you say, hey, you did this, I'm like, what? What do you mean I did what? No, I didn't. But if I did something wrong, and someone comes to me, you did this, what do you mean I did what? No. I don't, why are you blaming that on me? I mean, it goes on and on. We will expand that whole thing without our knowledge, because... We get upset and we get angry. So same thing is happening here. When they heard this, they were cut to heart. They took this seriously and their facial expressions was changed. Their physical appearance changed. They were about to kill these disciples. They want to slay. Look at that. You killed Jesus. Oh, yeah, because, you know, if you, uh, if you see some testimonies of uh, those who kill people, I actually read one, I actually saw one on YouTube. This guy has cut, cut the cellmate to whatever pieces with however he wants and he took his uh, this is even terrible he's he was just playing with his organs uh, someone interviewed him and don't you feel really awful and awkward for doing that don't you feel like you know you want to throw up and all so like and, uh, once you do one time like you kill somebody the first time the first time he's a little shaky second time you think it's fun the third time it's you're looking to kill somebody i mean it's like going on and on and on this guy doesn't feel anything now. So there are people like that who goes off killing people. They don't feel anything because the first time they do something, they're like scared, they're shaky. But then second time, they're okay, okay. If you look into some of these cartel shows, go kill somebody. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, do it. Do it once, you'll be fine. So first shot, first kill. Go kill somebody, what? Yeah, go kill somebody. Second one is gonna be a little shaky, but job done. Third time, go kill somebody, oh, okay. What's the address? Because I'm used to it. Look at these people. They, they, they killed Jesus. And now it's the same thing. They don't feel guilt. They don't feel anything bad at all. They don't feel like, oh, no, uh, these guys are pointing their fingers at us. They're always rebuking us, saying that we are the ones who killed Jesus. So maybe we need to step back and think what's going on. That is not the case. They want to kill these disciples as well because they were pointing. The disciples were pointing out what was happening in their, what they did, basically. So they took counsel to kill these disciples. Now, they could kill the apostles for religious apostasy from their perspective because for them, this is apostles. They're preaching something new. They don't want to preach Jesus. Or they could say these men are gaining some followers, leading thousands of people to follow Jesus and not them. So they have all kinds of excuses really to kill these people, to slay these people. What happens at the point when these people were thinking about what to do, how you know, we should kill them, and they're discussing about that, there comes the show of Gamaliel, the discourse of Gamaliel. How many of you remember who Gamaliel was? He was the teacher of uh, who? Law. Teacher of the law. Expert. He, expert. He also taught somebody. Yeah, he also taught somebody, though. He was a teacher of some Pharisees. Paul, he was a teacher of Paul. Can you, I mean, this guy, 
is a teacher of Paul. Maybe by then he changed, something changed in him. Maybe by then he taught Paul, maybe something changed. But look at what's going on here. In the Gamaliel's discourse, what's going on? Then stood up there one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, doctor of the law, or uh, you know, basically teacher of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. He was saying, hold on, people, hold on a second. Just don't, don't be too harsh. Don't be too harsh. Hold on a second. Don't take any action just rapidly. And so... What is he saying? And he said unto him, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. So Gamaliel, while they were talking, he stood up and said, Man, hold on a second. Don't, you're trying to kill the man now. Hold on a second. Think about what you're doing. And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a member of men, about 400, joined themselves who were slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. There's somebody named Theodos. He was, you know, he thought he was somebody, really. And he had about 400 people following him. When he was killed, everybody that obeyed him were scattered. There was no more. You see where he's going with this? Slow down. Don't kill them. Let me remind you about the past of what happened. Uh, give me just one second here. Something is not. Oops. Okay. Something is not right here, but anyways. So he was saying, slow down. There's somebody that was there in the past, but he died and everybody that followed him just left. So you see, you get some sense of what he's already saying here. He's looking at these disciples and looking at the Sanhedrin, and the committee that were about to slay him and say, these things happened in the past. These things happened in the past. So hold on, slow down. After this man, after Theodos, there's another one. Another man raised up named Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished in all, even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. He's given two examples from the past for this Sanhedrin to slow down into taking an action so that they won't really kill these people. But what is this guy doing? Gamaliel is one of the men who's got good name, good reputation. He's, he's got good reputation in the Roman Empire. He's got good reputation even onto Syria. He's a big guy. Big guy in the sense, you know, a lot of people, he can control the politics. He can control the politics. But in, in the summary way, what he's really doing, what is Gamaliel doing? And now I say it unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. Look at this. For if... This counsel or this work be of man, then it will come to naught. That is a conditional statement. If this counsel or this work be of man, if this is of the disciples alone, then you know, I just gave you two examples. This is going to stop at some point. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. What is he really doing? Oh, look at here, Gamaliel. We might think at first reading, Gamaliel has come here to rescue the disciples. He's going to save Peter and the disciples from persecution, from these people, from killing him. No, Gamaliel is just playing a game here, a political game. He's not supporting the disciples. 
he's holding them off, but he's really not supporting the disciples. He's actually making a little mess. Gamaliel himself is making a little mess here. He used the two people. He used two people as an example because saying that this is from a man, so from man, whatever begins with man, it's going to end up pretty soon. You don't have to worry about that. So same thing could be of this man. So he says, based on, based on his uh, uh, argument, stay away from them. For if this group origins is of men, then it will collapse just like this Judas and Theodos uh, that we have noticed from the past. So don't worry. But if this is of God, you be careful. You cannot overthrow. And you're going to be fighting against God. So from Greek conditional clauses here, for if this counsel of this work of be of men, it will come to naught. This is called the first class condition. What is first class condition? It says, for the, something is true for the sake of argument. He's not even certain. Gamaliel is not certain. If something is true for the sake of argument, so if this is true for the sake of argument, then this. In other words, if this counsel or this work be of men, then this is going to happen. Then it will come to naught. And then we, uh, we look here, the next one, but if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So what is going on here? In this part, he uses another conditional clause from Greek. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. The first class condition assumes the truth for the state of argument, argument for the sake of the argument. So even here, Gamaliel is not sure of the happenings that he thought. Uh, he, he, his thought doesn't give us the concrete reasoning. He is just unsure because he's not sure of the both places. If this counsel is of men, it'll, be, it'll come to naught. If this is of God, then you cannot overthrow it. So he's not sure whether it is of men or whether it is of God. He is the man of God. He is the, well, in a sense, he's the teacher of the law. He should have known better, but he doesn't know that better. He doesn't know what's going on. He's assuming, basically, what's going to happen. And if you look closely, even here, the Gamaliel is not even supporting the disciples. He's not supporting Christians. He's just being pragmatic. He's just being pragmatic. He's just being sort of political. So if you look at Deuteronomy, and maybe he's drawing this from Deuteronomy 18, 20, 22, where it says, But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even the prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? So he's probably getting some sort of a background information from this. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it, presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. He's got some knowledge of what is going on. If this is just for the, from, coming from the men, just don't worry about that because it's not going to stay too long. These men will fail. And all you're stressing about this, you want to kill these people, all this is for what? It comes to nothing. So in other words, Gamaliel was saying, take it easy. Take it easy. I gave you two examples. Anything could happen. We're not sure, but anything could happen. But his guess is that he's not supporting the disciples. At the same time, he's saying it could be their work. If it's their work, then it's going to disappear sometime soon. But if it's God's work, you're going to fight against God. And if you fight against God, you're not going to win it. So we don't know which one it is. Just leave him alone. Just wait and see. Wait and see. By that, Gamaliel is actually doing something wrong. He's not allowing for these people to think and process what the disciples are saying. Because if Gamaliel didn't push them off to think and slow down and not punish them and see where this goes, because uh, let them go, do what they're doing. Let's see where, how, how far it goes. Well, by, by the time 
Some of these Sanhedrin people might die. Some of them might believe in the Lord if they, if he, if they allows the disciples to preach the name of Jesus in their town. So Gamaliel is really not supporting their work. He's sort of blocking their work. What can we learn from Gamaliel's discourse? He's a failed theologian. <laughs> At that point, I know he's going to teach Paul later. Maybe he'll learn after that, by the time. But he's a failed theologian. He's comparing Christianity to political insurrection. He made people to wait too long to see the movement is real. What's going on is real. What is going on? What disciples are doing is real. They're preaching the real Jesus Christ who was killed by these people, who raised up again, who ascended to heaven, who's going to come back again. Their anticipation is that Jesus will come back. Jesus will come back. There's one of the things uh, uh, you know, we'll be dealing with tonight, uh, tonight's service from First Peter because Peter's, Peter's book is about the anticipation of second coming. His teaching is also Christ is going to come back. So they're really in rush because their expectation is that Christ would come at any time. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, from their time, that is in the first century. Christ would come at any point, so we got to be ready, we got to do what we need to do. We have to share the good news of Jesus Christ to as many people as we should, as we can. So they're really uh, passionate about sharing Christ. They're really on a mission, on God's mission to share the word of God. So here we see this guy, Gamaliel, a theologian, he's stopping their work, he's blocking God's work. But then... In spite of all this persecution, we see the joy in suffering. That is also one of the things that Peter talks about in his book, First Peter. And to him they agreed, that is the Sanhedrin, because obviously Gamaliel was a big guy. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, oh, they have to somehow satisfy themselves, right? They can't just let them go all the time. Last two times, they just let him go. They simply put him in prison, sometimes put him in a hole, Sometimes in the third time, I believe they cannot, they were not able to put their hands, lay their hands on them because the crowd was watching. The crowd was ready to beat this policeman if they handled them badly. This time, they're just not satisfied to leave him alone. They beat him. Then they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is the first time they actually use the term Jesus. So persecution, there's continuity of persecution, but then there's also joy. And they departed from the presence of the council. Doing what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Jesus said to his disciples that they would suffer for his name's sake. Christians would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. Christians will go through a lot of persecution. Whether it's emotional or, or physical, whether it is both, they'll go through persecution. You look at the world, the world is dominating, right? Christianity. They're pressuring Christians. You cannot probably live a happy Christian life. In the coming days, it's going to be probably very complicated. Even if you say Christian, saying Christian would, might be very difficult for survival. But we're going to be persecuted in every form and way, but still there is hope. What they, that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are missing is the bigger part. This is just temporary. This is just temporary living. Our lives are not going to remain here forever, right? Our permanent abode is where? In heaven. So, I mean, <laughs> we could go into teaching of citizenship. What citizen are you? Where do you belong? 
which country do you belong to? We shouldn't care really what we belong to because we should belong to heaven. That is, that ought to be our citizenship. These disciples, they're citizens of heaven. They don't care what happens here. What is people going to do? What are they going to do? Jesus said, what could these people do? I mean, if they, if they persecute you, for example, they cannot touch your soul. What, who can do anything to your soul? Nothing. These people care less about the persecution because they see a future that is filled with glory, filled with Christ, a future that is eternal while they were going through this in temporal phase. So they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake because Jesus taught them they're going to suffer. And daily in the temple and every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They don't care what's going to happen. Come do whatever you want to do. We're not going to stop preaching and teaching Jesus. If we die, we're going to be with him, with the master teacher. In other words, they were just with Jesus Christ, right? Just a few days ago, they were with Jesus learning from the master, learning from the creator God. What are you going to do? Beat us to death? Okay. You're going to be with him again. Who are we going to continue learning? What's, you're the one who's at loss. You're going to lose the blessings, not us. We already have the blessings. You already have the reward. See, Paul says, I mean, as, as ministers of God, even in Isaiah says the thing, even Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of the one that shares the gospel. I'm just paraphrasing completely. Those who serve the Lord, they already have the crown waiting in heaven. We don't know how the crown looks. How big? Is it going to be a crown of jewels or gold? What not? We don't know. But there is a reward that is waiting for believers. That is bigger than this temporal thing. Sometimes, you know, I talk with my wife and we just go down this way and see the sunset. And, oh, this is so beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? But then we think, if this temporal thing is this beautiful, how beautiful should heaven be? Right? Sometimes we do stand in awe of God's creative work. We look at the sky and the beautiful shades of color. There's no master artist like God. Right? Jeremiah would agree with that, right? Because you do the art. There's no master artist like God. God says there is that art and colors, everything coming out of the sky. We see them. And we look at them and say, wow. That is beautiful. And we try to grab a phone, take a picture because we don't want to miss the shot. If you're so amazed at this little thing that's going to disappear in a few minutes, think about the permanent thing in heaven. There is no need for sunlight or moon or any of that in heaven because that place is going to be filled with God's glory. And, and my family, we're lost of our father. So we are, obviously my sisters, they talk on, on Facebook or WhatsApp about my dad, him not being here, and church members, for example, because he's been pastor for 50 plus years, and now a church without him is like, so certainly it's going to be look different. His absence is evident. They can see his absence. So they talk about him and so forth. But still, I, I think in my mind, we talk about these things, but he doesn't have any time to look back and, ah, I miss my church. He doesn't have any time for any of that. He's seeing what we are longing to see, right? If, we are, if our hearts are right with the Lord, we must long to see the Lord. And we're going to look at that maybe tonight. I don't want to get too much into First Peter. Hopefully, man, doing three sermons in three 
teachings in a day is difficult, <clears throat> I think. So here we're seeing whatever they're going through, these disciples are rejoicing that they're persecuted. They count it worthy to be suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus. And daily in the temple and even in every house, and they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? So conclusion of chapter 5, what can we learn from chapter 5? Finally, we're coming to an end. Don't live like Ananias and Sapphira. Those who are true followers of Jesus Christ suffer for partaking in his work. We can't escape it. Those who are true followers of Jesus Christ draw anger from outsiders. But those who are not true followers of Jesus Christ, they mingle with them. You see, when you think of a statement, you have to think on it both sides. What is a positive side and what is a negative side? Those who are true followers of Jesus Christ face persecution, but those who are not true followers, but they're because church is filled with both types of people. There's lukewarm, there's honest believers. There's people who play God or who play, you know, as if they are saints outwardly, but inwardly they are not, right? So those who are true followers, they face persecution. Those who are pretending in drama, they don't face any of them because they side with the good side, so they won't get in trouble. Those who are true followers of Jesus Christ rejoice in persecution of God's deliverance because their hope is not in themselves. Their hope is in the Lord himself. 